Amen. Amen. Good morning. Well, saints, I have the great privilege again to uh, preach a message on a biblical metaphor, and that metaphor is God as host. So before we begin, I will pray and ask the Lord's blessing upon the rest of our service. Heavenly Father, you are holy. You alone are the source of all wisdom and knowledge. Bless the reading of your word this morning. Cause our hearts and ears to be open to the wisdom that you have so rich and richly given to us. May your word find fertile soil in our hearts. Holy Spirit, convict us and lead us according to the word of God so that we can glorify Christ and imitate him well. Amen. Amen. So, I am at a bit of a disadvantage preaching semi-regularly. Uh, Mike has the ability to create series and follow a schedule and things like that, and we've tried folding me into his sermon series, but that oftentimes is difficult because he may speed up or slow down at various points, and so it makes it, gives me like a moving target to, to preach on. So I'm left with the, uh, either having to preach topical sermons or figure out some other type of sermon to preach. And so what I've realized I am going to do is do a protracted series on biblical metaphors. And I've actually already done one. That was my sermon on God as a metal worker. So this will be, if you will, the second in that <laughs> protracted series. And after about 10 or 20 years, we'll probably get through most of them. <laughs> at this rate, at least. So we will be looking at the biblical metaphor of God as host. But this, of course brings up the question of why, do, why are metaphors used? What is the importance of metaphors in Scripture? And to give us a good explanation for that, I would like to turn immediately to Charles Spurgeon. He has this to say regarding the significance or the usefulness of biblical metaphors. So he says this, quote, Metaphors often convey to the mind truth which otherwise would not have reached the understanding. For men frequently see under the guise and form of an illustration a doctrine which, if it had been nakedly stated, they could not have comprehended. Illustrations, like windows, let light into the chambers of the mind. There is this use also in a metaphor, that even if it is not understood at first, it excites thought, and men exercise their minds upon it, as a child upon an enigma. And so they learn, perhaps more, through a dark saying than through a sentence which at first sight is transparent. So metaphors have the ability to actually communicate more clearly and more accurately than a technical sentence, than an analytical sentence can. But this is only achieved if we understand them properly, if we understand the biblical metaphors properly. So there's two ways, there's two um, phases, if you will, that are used to identify or to understand biblical metaphors. The first phase we must go through is identifying the presence of that metaphor in Scripture. So the presence of the metaphor. Now we're used to hearing common metaphors like God is our fortress or God is our rock. Or things like, Christ is the Lion of Judah. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And of course, the most famous, which is, God is our Father. 
Now, these common metaphors, and I'm calling them common because they are easy to identify. The presence of any one of these terms sticks out to us when we read Scripture. They're easy to identify. So if you want to learn more about God as a rock, you can simply turn to where it uses that term. We have our modern Bibles now where we can just do a word search, and we can search rock throughout Scripture. And then from there, because we have that clear indicator... We can use that as a starting point for determining, is this word, rock, being used in a metaphorical sense? But what about metaphors that are not explicitly named, such as God as a metalsmith? The Bible never says explicitly that God is a goldsmith or silversmith. Yet, if we read Ezekiel, we can clearly see that that idea, that concept, is being communicated. So that is where metaphors, those types of metaphors, are a little bit harder to study because it requires understanding words that are connected with that concept. So that is how we identify the metaphor, the presence of the metaphor. Is it being used? The next step we take is determining the metaphor's limits. Now this is where uh, my education paid off greatly. Um, I studied philosophy, and I actually used it heavily for this particular point. There are two terms here that I would like to introduce to you um, that help us greatly when understanding the limits, not only of metaphors, but the limits of human language itself. And that is the term cataphatic theology and apophatic theology. So cataphatic theology is what is called positive theology. And apophatic theology is negative theology. Now, we're not talking about this theology is good and this theology is bad. That's not what we're indicating. These terms are used to communicate when we make a positive or affirmative statement about God or his characteristics versus a negative statement about God. For example, when we say God is something or God is like something, we're making a, an affirmative statement. We're making a positive claim. That is cataphatic theology. So whenever we say God is like something, God is our rock, God is our fortress, God is a host, those are cataphatic or positive theology. If we say God is not like something, then we're using negative theology. And both of those can be useful because we would say, well, God is clearly not just like a metal worker, or only a host. God is not only like a man, right? Christ is not only man. Um, I had to, has everyone seen um, the bumper stickers? may not be around too much anymore where it says, Jesus is, City Church used those. If you ever see the bumper sticker where it says, Jesus is, and obviously that's cataphatic theology. Jesus is, right, the Lord. Jesus is our Savior, But I wanted, when I was in college, those were all over the place because it was Northwest. And I wanted to gleefully go around with a white Sharpie and just put nt on the is. Jesus isn't. And the idea is to watch people's reactions. Oh, what are you doing? And it's like, no, you must understand that Jesus isn't just your buddy. Right? Jesus isn't merely a man. And those statements, though they're negative, they're apophatic theology, those are equally true. So when we use positive theology and negative theology, when we study a metaphor, 
we're determining its limits. And you can think of these things as the bookends to the shelf. And the metaphor is in the middle. We've determined the limits of the metaphor because we don't want to make the metaphor go beyond what is appropriate. We don't want to make it walk on all fours, so to speak. So we have two steps. We identify the presence of the metaphor and we determine its limits. How does this actually apply to God? And then where do we reach a point where this is no longer accurately describing the attributes of God? So how far can we go with this metaphor before we run out of room or we get onto the really skinny branches? This is how we perform systematic theology. This is how the reformers and theologians and scholars perform systematic theology. This is how we accurately examine and parse out scripture. So I'm sort of teaching you how I prepared for this sermon or how to study for metaphors, God, uh, biblical metaphors. So if we look at the metaphor of God as a host, we can ask the question, well, what terms are connected with that idea of God hosting? Well, the most obvious is host and hospitality, right? There's not hospitality. Hospitality isn't given unless there's a host, right? And you're not really a host unless you're giving hospitality. Then you're just the landowner or something, right? So these terms are synonymous, and those terms are easy to identify. But there are other terms that are connected with the idea of hosting or hospitality. And those terms include terms like guest or invite, to, to call to yourself, invitation, meal, drink, table, and even terms like together or gather together can be indications of the presence of this metaphor. And to go even further... Typologically, now, now that we have the New Testament, we can actually look back into the Old Testament. And because we now know Christ, we can see Christ in the Old Testament, whereas he wasn't clearly seen before. So what that allows us to do is actually go a, a third step further, where we may see the presence of a metaphor without even words that are connected directly to it. And that's actually what we're going to do today uh, when we get to our passage in Genesis. So we have, uh, that's how to identify and set the limits of a metaphor using the terms and the connected terms. Now, obviously, the overall context of the passage is the clearest indicator and the clearest help for what is actually being communicated. It's not merely those words. So we start with host and hospitality. Now, the Bible also calls God the Lord of hosts. Now, that term, the Lord of hosts, is not connected with hospitality. The title Lord of hosts means the commander of the armies of heaven. So when I was studying this, I was like, oh, does this have to do with the Lord of hosts? No, that term is a military title. Christ is the Lord of hosts. He's the commander of the armies of heaven. But that is not related to the metaphor of God hosting or showing hospitality to creation. So in case you were wondering that, as I was. So we begin with our own understanding of these terms. Well, we have a pretty good idea of what hospitality looks like, but we must remember that our context is not the biblical context. We can't just take our immediate context and put it into scripture and then say, I understand it. We must look at what was ancient Israelite hospitality like. In order to understand how God hosts Israel, we need to see how they hosted each other 
2,500 years ago or 3,000 years ago. So we must remember their context. But first of all, Israel, throughout its history, is a semi-nomadic culture, right? At this time, most nations were like that. In the uh, Near Eastern world, in the Mediterranean region, they didn't really have infrastructure yet. The Romans hadn't come through and built roads yet. So this is very much the wilderness. These people were gathered together in small communities, small groups, and later on they would build cities like Jerusalem and other you know, foreign cities would, would come up. But the idea is that the structures and the housing and their living situations were semi-permanent. So semi-permanent housing and you have semi-nomadic tribes of people. They were not engaging in commerce like we do. Their money was their sheep. Their money was their livestock, right? They didn't have necessarily paper dollars or coin or, or gold coins to spend at a supermarket. Those things didn't exist. So they relied off of the land, and they relied off of one another. So that's an important aspect. So travel was very difficult. We take that for granted because we can fly across the world in 12 hours. Travel at this time was extremely limited, extremely dangerous, I don't know when the last time you went on a hike, but imagine trying to do that with all of your belongings and no modern assistance. And that if you don't reach your destination, there's no support. So you have travel being very difficult, the landscape is difficult, and there are no hotels. There are no inns to stop in along the way. So all the, I'm saying all this because it really does necessitate the, uh, the function of showing hospitality to your kinsmen. And they weren't traveling very far distances either. Uh, Several days of travel really wasn't that many miles. So the idea of traveling to another country was sort of out of the question. That would take months or perhaps a year. So the people who were traveling within Israel were most likely other Israelites. So these are their kinsmen. So they travel within the land, and as a result of being kinsmen, being in their own land, it's expected, it's almost required to show hospitality to these people because they are in the wilderness. If you don't show them hospitality, the likelihood of them being injured or dying is very, very high. So not only is this born out of a culture of, of respect and honoring the guest-host relationship, but it's also built out of a pure necessity. And actually, if you look at pretty much every culture at this time, not only the Israelites, they all had what are known as hospitality codes. And those hospitality codes almost universally have four similar elements. So we're going to look at the four phases of ancient hospitality codes, and these were explicit within Israel as well. So the first phase of showing hospitality was, of course, you could probably guess it, invitation. We're not just going to randomly show up in someone's home. So we, we invite. So the ancient Israelites were expected to be ready pretty much at any moment to receive guests. So that's a very interesting point, that they would live their lives, they would structure their lives, in which they were seemingly always ready to accept or invite guests in. So the invitation wasn't one that was done begrudgingly. This is one that when they saw a stranger or a kinsman who needed to be brought in, who was traveling, clearly traveling, they would actually go out and seek that person. And there are several instances of scripture where either the host himself or his servants run out 
to the stranger to call them to come to the master's house. And this was because they believed that the guests were being sent by God. So this was an opportunity for them to express hospitality. And as we will see, the type of hospitality that they received from the Lord himself. So this is born within Israelites' culture. Israel's culture. So you have invitation. The second and third phase can kind of be interchangeable. So you have assessment and then provision and protection. So assessment is basically finding out why are you here? What are your needs? How can we help you? And, and if they are fellow kinsmen, if they were fellow Israelites, that would include prayer and the reading of Torah and the adherence of the law. So they would help them essentially obey God together. So you have the assessment phase and the provision phase, and those can be swapped or they can kind of be commingled, right? We're, we're, we're used to that a little bit in the sense of when we invite people over, we don't simply sit down and, and only say, hey, how are you doing? How's life? And then we have a meal. We may have the meal first, and then we assess, and then we ask questions, and then we have uh, time to talk and visit. So the order here, these, these second and third phase, are not a strict order. Okay? The fourth phase is, oh, sorry, I want to add one more thing. Uh, it's provision and protection. So obviously there's the immediate meal. There's the immediate provision. But in the Old Testament, oftentimes protection was the extra step that they took. Because if they called people in, they were calling them out of the wilderness. So they wanted them to sleep within safety because at that time there were bands of robbers. There were uh, enemies that would infiltrate the land, right? And they could pick off groups of people who were not secured. So protection was a huge element to this notion of hospitality. We don't really uh, experience that too much because we all have permanent homes. We all have permanent homes. We're not the ones who are wandering here and there or traveling every day. So the protection aspect is important because the host was, when he brought the guest in, he then assumed responsibility over that guest. So if the guest was injured or died under his protection, it was actually on him. It was his fault. He was culpable for it. And the best example of this is actually the Good Samaritan, where you have, a, you have the example of a Samaritan who's not a Jew exercising proper hospitality. And the Jews, the Pharisees, the leaders of Israel, don't. They don't exercise proper hospitality to their kinsmen, but this Samaritan does. He goes the extra mile. He provides for his needs. He assumes responsibility over that man. That's biblical hospitality. That is mirroring God as a host. So that's the second and third phase. The fourth phase is departure. Now, this is not simply saying, have a good night, good to see you. Departure was oftentimes culminated with a cutting of covenant, as Mike has been saying. A cutting of covenant, or at the very least, a renewal of covenant. So the departure was a more protracted, intentful exercise. They didn't just simply say, okay, we'll see you next time. But they would renew a covenant with each other. And that covenant was built on mutual loyalty and peace. And I would say that if you do the first three things, 
if you invite, if you assess, you provide, and you protect, it's very hard to leave without peace. It's very hard to leave without loyalty. Those three things generally build peaceful unity, build loyalty between two families. But the important part is that the departure was done for the purpose of renewing or cutting a covenant, creating a covenant with one another. And there are examples in the Old Testament where uh, figures would host a group of strangers and it explicitly says that they make a covenant with one another as they go out. And that is a covenant that then they hold to or they should hold to all of their life. So with all this in mind, we can ask the question, that's quite a lot, where does this first appear? I don't recall hearing this explicitly named anywhere in scripture. Where does this first appear? Well, like most things, it doesn't take long. Genesis chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 2. Right off the bat, we are actually still in the creation narrative. So Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, we have the phase of invitation. So beginning at verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So this is in the midst of the creation narrative. God has, is in the process of creating all of creation. And he realizes, I do not have a steward. I do not have someone who can steward the land, who can work the land. So he creates Adam in his own image for this explicit purpose. Well, what does God do? He doesn't just leave him out wandering the hillside. No, he plants a garden for Adam. And the garden here is not Adam's home. The garden is actually God's dwelling place. Because when Adam falls, God doesn't leave the garden. Adam does. Guests don't keep the house, right? The host owns the home. So the garden is actually pictured here as God's dwelling place. It is, the, in, in some sense, the first tabernacle, the first temple. So God creates a home, builds his home, and he invites Adam in, where Adam becomes God's guest in the garden. So God has formed creation, and yet God said there's no one to work the land and tend to this creation. So he creates Adam, places him in the garden, and here Adam is not only God's servant and steward, but he becomes his son and guest. So there is the first phase of invitation. God creates the garden and invites Adam in. The second, in the order of Genesis, is the phase of provision and protection. So if we go down to verse 15, we will see how God provides and protects for Adam. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but not of the tree 
of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God not only provides the garden and all the abundance in it, you may eat of everything, but he also gives Adam a very interesting law. You shall not eat of that one tree. So at this point, we have God inviting mankind into his dwelling place, and he gives him a single law. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God provides food and shelter for his guest, and he also explains the expectations, the requirements that the guest is to fulfill. And we're used to this as well. When we enter someone's home for the first time, we may ask, should I take my shoes off? Should, we go some, should the children be directed somewhere to wash their hands first? Or something like that. We're used to understanding that this is no longer my home. I'm a guest here. What are the house rules? And in this picture, God is setting the stage. The narrative is setting the stage of an archetypal law. Whereas here, the law is simply one instruction. Don't eat from that tree. You can have everything else. In other words, all of my home is yours. Just don't enter the master bedroom. Right? So we have all of these, all the abundance that the host has to give to his guest. He freely gives to his guest, but he sets one parameter. So he gives Adam one law. And this becomes the blueprint for all salvific history. This, the third phase here in Genesis is assessment. Assessment and then providing for the needs that God assesses Adam to have. So continuing at verse 18. 18 through 22. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to him. God assesses Adam's needs for a helper, for a helpmate. And God, obviously being God, is capable of fulfilling that need. So he creates Eve as Adam's helper. Now this is not merely to help uh, hoe the ground, to help dig trenches. This is not merely to help pick the weeds. Well, I guess there were no weeds yet. Uh, eventually picking weeds. This was not merely to help tend the physical garden, but this was, she was his helper to fulfill his role as steward over all creation for the purpose of glorifying God. So Eve was created for Adam, so Adam and Eve together could glorify their God and host. It was not merely for practical purposes, but it was for spiritual purposes. They could together more fully glorify their God. So that's the third phase. And the final phase would be departure. Now this is where, as they say in the story, everything goes awry. Everything was going great for the first three phases. And when it comes to departure, 
Or if Adam and Eve had not fallen, if they had not sinned and eaten of the fruit, then they would have never departed. They would have stayed in the house of the Lord forever. But because of their breaking of the covenant, because of their breaking of the one law that God gave them as their guests, there is a tenuous departure. So Adam and Eve are sent out. So we read that in actually Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 and 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim with the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is Adam and Eve being cast out of God's dwelling place. Why? Because they broke covenant. They broke the laws that the host had set in place. God, their lawmaker, their lawgiver, had given them. They broke it, so they are cast out. So here is the history of Israel encapsulated. We have being brought in, invited, assessed assessed for, provided for by God, and then a breaking of covenant. And that happens again and again and again. So this is a repetitive pattern throughout the Old Testament. The fall of Adam and the curse of sin on mankind as a result has damaged the relationship between God and man. So here is the first instance of this. This is significant typologically because throughout the Old Testament, we can see the stories of Israel and individual figures within Israel fail over and over again to keep the covenant of God. They fail to keep the requests of their host. They cannot keep God's commands. Now, this cycle repeats in the life of Abraham. God blesses Abraham and makes a covenant with him. He sends him into a new land, invites, provides, and sends out, departs. God acts as a host to Joseph while he is in in Egypt. And subsequently, through Joseph, he hosts all of Israel in Egypt. And then God invites Israel out of Egypt through Moses and Aaron. They depart Egypt, but God then invites them into a promised land. But they break covenant. And so they're invited into the wilderness. There God provides for them. He assesses what they need. He makes a new covenant with them at Sinai. Yet Israel continues to break these covenants. And on and on this cycle goes through the life of the judges on into David and Solomon and the kings of Israel. The the pattern of God hosting Israel or hosting particular leaders of Israel cycles again throughout the Old Testament. And it's looking forward to when this cycle will be fulfilled. When all of the phases of of God's hospitality will be kept. When will this cycle be restored? How can these covenants be kept? Well, this is why Christ has come. So Christ, in the New Testament, comes, for among many reasons, to fulfill God as host, to rather fulfill the obligations of God as host. 
So Christ is not only seen as the host to all mankind in the New Testament, but he also takes on the role of guest. So Christ not only shows hospitality, but he receives hospitality. And this is an important note. During the ministry of Christ in the Gospels, Israel can be pictured, can be viewed in two camps, two categories. There is the category of Israel that shows hospitality to Christ, to invite, who invites him in and shows hospitality and invites in his disciples. And then there is Israel who rejects Christ by not showing him hospitality. So when you read the Gospels and it says Jesus entered so-and-so's home, we just think, we just kind of gloss over that and say, oh, he entered somebody's home. But we don't, but what we miss is all of this context in the sense that that person would have been responsible for going out and finding the disciples and actively inviting them in. Now, the New Testament authors take that for granted because they understood that. We miss that part. We think, oh, Christ is just entering people's homes. But we don't know the buildup. We don't know the invitation process. And this is what helps us understand it, that these individuals were going out and seeking the disciples because they were acting as Israel should. They were recognizing the Messiah, and they were showing him the type of hospitality that they had received from God for thousands of years. So Israel either shows hospitality to Christ, or they don't. And the curses and consequences of not showing hospitality to Christ is, of course, you don't hear the gospel preached. So this is why... In the New Testament, when Jesus commands his disciples to go into a town, and if the town doesn't invite you in, if someone in the town doesn't accept you, shake off the dust from your feet and leave, because it's better for Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Well, what's worse than Sodom and Gomorrah? Physical destruction is pretty bad, but there's something that's worse, and that's eternal damnation apart from God by not hearing the gospel. So those who rejected Christ, didn't show him hospitality, did not receive the good news. They did not hear the kingdom preached. They missed out. They did not hear Christ speak himself. So Israel is in those two camps. Those who show hospitality and respond properly, and those who reject and do not show hospitality. Now they were expected to show hospitality to rabbis. That was a cultural institution. So it was actually a very purposeful, intentful activity on the part of the Jews who rejected him. It isn't like, oh, we just don't have time. No, this was intentful. This was purposeful. So that is how Christ is seen as the guest in Israel. And simultaneously, as as pretty much all of these metaphors are going, they're mixed together and simultaneously occurring, Christ is also hosting his disciples and the church. So Christ hosts his followers, the church. And by hosting his followers, his disciples, he fulfills this four-phase process of divine hospitality. So he's the one who brings the cycle to a close and fulfills it to the glory of his Father. So in the Old Testament, uh, whereas Israel kept breaking covenant, the cycle kept being interrupted, Now Christ comes to fulfill that cycle. And how does he do this in the life of the church? Even to this day, he does this. He calls us to repentance. 
He calls us to repentance by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, through the conviction of sins. That is our invitation. Christ is hosting us, and he invites us in to the covenant. Then he assesses and provides for our needs. How does he assess what we need, and how does he provide for us? Well, he gives us the Holy Spirit, his spirit. He gives us his word for food, and he gives us the sacraments, baptism and communion, as ways of remembering and participating in the covenant forevermore, ongoing. So there, Christ assesses and provides for his church. And then finally, and this is where things get very interesting, finally, he sends us out. So we are sent out, and yet simultaneously, we don't leave. So we're sent out into the world to proclaim the gospel, the Great Commission. So we've been invited, called, we've been tested, our, uh, our needs have been assessed. Christ has provided for them perfectly through his spirit, the word, and the sacraments. We have all that we need from Christ. And then he says, now go. You, as my guests, go into the world and preach the good news, which is, this is how I host creation. So the departure that Christ sends us out is twofold. Now, the the provision and departure aspects of Christ's hospitality go even further, and this is the second aspect. Rather than being invited over and over again, that's not what's happening here. We're not being invited over and over again. We're not being brought into the covenant over and over again. We are brought into the covenant once and for all. We are grafted into the family of God. We are filled with his Holy Spirit, and so we are ever united with God. We are now being hosted not as mere guests, but now as sons. And so the table we share, communion, is the ongoing participation and renewal of this covenant. It points us forward to eternity, where we will dwell with God forever. So the table is a living emblem of the promises that we have in Christ. I'll say that again. The table is the living emblem of the promises we have in Christ. Now our reading this morning was from Psalm 23, which is arguably the most famous psalm. And it's clear that God is being pictured there as a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. So there's an instance where that term, shepherd, is clearly indicated. So studying God as a shepherd is very easy to do, very easy to find in Psalm 23. Well, what is lesser known is that God is actually is communicated as a host in Psalm 23. So verses 1 through 4, David, being a shepherd himself, rightfully and accurately uses the descriptions of God as a shepherd to communicate ideas about God. But in verse 5, David switches the metaphor. So he uses, in verses 1 through 4, he uses shepherd, but at verse 5, he switches the metaphor to God as a host. So I will read verses 5 and 6 from Psalm 23. It says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We can see that David is communicating. God is a host to him. He has hosted him in the presence of his enemies. Now, Charles Spurgeon, once again, in his book, 
the treasury of David, has this to say regarding verse 5. Quote, When a soldier is in the presence of his enemies, if he eats at all, he snatches a hasty meal, and away he hastens to the fight. But observe, thou preparest a table, just as a servant does when she unfolds the damask cloth and displays the ornaments of the feast on an ordinary, peaceful occasion. Nothing is hurried. There is no confusion, no disturbance. The enemy is at the door, and yet God prepares a table. And the Christian sits down and eats as if everything were in perfect peace. That is the peace that we've been given by Christ. So this table which is prepared for us in the presence of a world that is in tumult, we can come to it knowing that we have full assurance and we have peace in Christ. So in this way, Christ fulfills Psalm 23. In the Old Testament, when you as a guest would eat and drink at your host table, there was far more going on than common courtesy. The table, as I said, signifies a covenant, signifies a mutual bond of loyalty, and it stood as the culmination of that covenant. So to be God's guests, or Christ's guests, assumes that we are far more than acquaintances who are invited for the day and then depart. No, we are invited as sons, as co-heirs, children of God to live and dwell with him forever. Christ has secured for us exactly what David is saying in Psalm 23. We have a table fully and lavishly set by the Lord himself. Christ has anointed us, he has anointed our heads, as it were, with his blood. He has filled our cup, he has filled us with his spirit, his Holy Spirit. He has given us his word for food and instruction. We have all that we could ever need or desire. And in Christ, we experience the goodness and mercy of God every day. We have assurance and hope knowing that we cannot be separated from God. And finally, Christ has secured for us eternal life where we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So this is biblical hospitality. This is how God and Christ show hospitality to mankind. So we as imitators of Christ can use this model of hospitality and extend it to others, our fellow saints and those who are not uh, united with Christ, the lost. And unlike certain theological concepts that can kind of be hard to apply, this one is actually quite simple. How do I apply this? How do I imitate Christ and the hospitality that he has shown to me. Do those four phases. We invite people in. We invite them in with joy and anticipation, and we receive them with expectation. We provide a meal and protection. Now, we're all very good at this. Obviously, we were just at the Browns last night. Provision and protection is right on the money, right? (laughs) We're, We're very good at that aspect in our culture. Provision and protection. Serve them a good meal. Make them feel at peace and at home. And then thirdly, assess what their needs are, not merely their physical needs. Ask them, how can we pray for you? How is life? How is your marriage? How are your children? 
asking these questions is assessing your guests. How then can I meet your needs? How then can I help you and minister to you and walk alongside you as we together seek to glorify God? So assess your guests' needs. And if you are able to meet them, meet them. Provide for those needs. And finally, send them out in peace. Now, as I said, if you do those first three things, peace will happen. It's not going to be hard to go out in peace and unity and loyalty if you perform the first three well, graciously. So those are the four phases of invitation. And if we do those things, we can actually preach the gospel without ever saying a word. We can preach the gospel to our friends and families and our neighbors without necessarily needing to get out a Bible and go through the doctrines of grace. And when people ask, because they will, if you perform this type of hospitality to people, they will ask you eventually, why are you doing this? This seems a little extreme. This is very gracious of you. Why do you show this type of hospitality? We can happily say, because this is the type of hospitality that God has shown to me. He has graciously invited me. He has provided for me. He assesses my needs. And he has died for me so that I will never be separated from him again. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your love, for your mercy, for your gracious gifts that you pour out on us. Lord, we thank you for your son. We thank you for this church, Lord. May we grow in unity. May we grow in fellowship. Lord, may we show hospitality to one another and to the world around us and so teach them and show them your love and your goodness, Lord. Amen.